Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. This week, we welcome Christian Holthausen, an absolute rock star of public and press relations in wine. We'll talk relationship building, budgets, influencers, and how good old-fashioned bar stories can help us be better communicators. Let's get into it. Good morning, Christian Holthausen. How are you? Good morning, Polly. I'm great. Thank you. You're in Paris today. Is that right? I'm in Paris every day, which is quite cool. Well, you're sort of in Paris every day, but you've got clients all over Europe and the UK. So, you know, you bebop around. Yeah, I do. I do bebop around, but uh, my home is Paris. Uh, I'm very lucky to be French and American, and I spent uh, most of my childhood in New York, and I've spent most of my adult life in Paris, and I feel very lucky to be able to do so. So God forbid you ever end up in, like, Cincinnati. Cincinnati's a cool city. <laughs> it's a really cool city. All right. I'll let that one go. So um, so I, I've asked you to join us today because I have done in the past interviews with publicists and public relations um, execs. And this is your bailiwick. I mean, everyone that you talk to uh, knows, you know, in wine, knows you. You've got a great reputation as a talented communicator. And I'm really curious to talk with you about some of the differences we see between, you know, sort of old world and new world communication, some of the mm. trends that you're seeing, but also just some of the, the misconceptions around what PR is and mm. what you can and can't make happen. Um, mm. So maybe let's start with that. Um, PR today, what, what does your job include anymore in an era of digital and social media and, mm. you know, podcast and YouTube and everything else. Like what do you spend your day doing? I mean, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about uh, being the age that I am, which is 48 years old is uh, we're young enough to adapt, but also old enough to know like how things were. Um, and I think it's really interesting because when I first started uh, my career in 1998, we literally had a Rolodex. We literally had like, you know, personal uh, phone numbers. We didn't even have mobile phones. We had personal phone numbers. Um, and basically your card was basically like who you knew. Whereas today you can get in contact with anyone on LinkedIn or on Instagram. Like if I want to find out uh, who X writer is for, you know, X magazine, like you can find that very easily. And if the story is compelling enough, you can completely get in contact with them. So that's definitely, um, been a, a change for sure. 
Um, but Can I, think I jump it, in on that though? Mm. So I remember the days of being hired for your Rolodex. I mean, I, I was in Los Angeles. I worked mm. in politics and very much it was who, who you had access to was, you know, set your pay scale and decided mm. whether or not you were going to get that job. Do you feel like that the loss of the personal connection that is implied by having someone in your Rolodex. I mean, that was an assumption that we mm. knew somebody and we had a direct dial line. Do you think that the loss of that personal connection um, is outweighed by the access to basically everyone in the world? You might be cold mm. calling or cold messaging someone nowadays. So even though we can get to them, we don't necessarily know them. I think that th I agree with you 100%. I think that the thing that I'm really proud of is that I do have very, very close personal uh, relationships with a lot of the people that I'm reaching out to. They could be, uh, you know, sommeliers, they could be journalists, they could be whoever. And I think that keeping that direct communication and also I'm not just contacting these people when I'm pitching them something, I'm contacting them just to check in because a lot of these people become real friends and, and you actually get to know them and know what they need and know what they don't need. And you also know what they might be interested in communicating about or not. Um, there's a whole list of people that you're like, okay, they will like this. And then there's all this really like, they will not like this. So I think that having that personal relationship is cool. I see that the, the cold contacting stuff, which now everyone does, um, I don't really like because, uh, for me, I always like to be introduced to someone by someone. Like if you said, hey, Christian, you need to meet this person. I'd be like, okay, well, we have Polly like in common. So therefore, if I respect her and trust her, then clearly I will probably respect and trust the person she's introducing me to. So I still think that's really important. Um, you see the way that people contact uh, the rest of the world now, and it's so cold. It's very cold and, and impersonal. And the thing that I hate more than anything is, you know, when you get these emails from people that say, hey, Polly, hope you're well. And you're like, we've never even met before. You don't hope I'm anything. And what I love about those are the unsubscribe button in that totally. email as well, where I'm like, oh, thank you. I don't know you. You scraped my data. You added my name to a list. And yep. guess what? I don't care what you're pitching. You're out the door. Because totally. that's that, you know, that's not how I do business. Um, I, I think that one of the things that I'm kind of remarking upon as you're talking is this notion of empathetic, you know, mm. communication and and sitting in that middle space between the clients and what I'm going to describe as the broadcasters, you know, the publishers, mm. the people who are actually going to get that word out. Um, I always tell the story about George Clooney. The brief version is George Clooney's career changed when he realized that he was the solution to casting directors' problems. You know, he he wasn't it wasn't his problem, it was theirs, which is a very empathetic approach to what kind of problem am I trying to solve? Mm. You know, this is the thing is that you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, what's the problem that I'm trying to solve on both sides here? And mm. and how do I actually make my work of value to both of them. And, and the, the reason that I'm kind of harping on this is I think a lot of what I see in PR and, and we have the opportunity with five forests to read a lot of people's, you know, PR pitches. They're so, I'm just going to tell you everything that I want you to know about me. And I don't give a rat's ass what, how this matters to you in your life. And I'm not going to structure this to apply to you at all. And now mm. go forward mm. and, you know, be my voice. Like it, it's yeah. just 
so abrasive and mm. poorly written, actually. But we can talk yeah. about that separately. Um, you know, so so in that context, like let's just say if I'm out there and I'm looking for someone to do the job that you do, what should I be looking for? Should I be looking at tenure? Should I be looking at breadth of relationships? Should I be looking at sweetness and personality? Mm. Like, how do I find the right person for that job? It's it's a tough one. I mean, I I, I like your focus on the word empathy because I think empathy is very important. Um, I think that being a high level empath means that you actually know what people need. You actually know what people don't need. Um, that's uh, an easy skill to assess for someone who's also a high level empath like you. But um, on paper. I think uh, tenure for me, like, is not necessarily as important because I've met loads of people who are 25 who are brilliant. I've met loads of people who are 60 who are brilliant, and I've met many of both that are not brilliant at all. So I don't necessarily think that tenure is uh, a thing. Um, I don't know. I always really insist on meeting people, like, personally, like, in a real, like, personal space and actually having a very honest exchange about values and convictions and what is important to you and what is important to your client. I think that stuff is really, really important. It's not just sending like a pitch. It's not just sending like a PowerPoint presentation. It's actually getting to know each other and being like, okay, like on paper, this could work, but like, could it really, really work? Um, and I think that that kind of gets, uh, <laughs> kind of masked today because today people just like reach out to everyone. Like, I mean, the number of pitches that someone like you gets a day, I mean, come on, like, it's crazy. And it's like, did you even like do a little bit of research on five fours? Did you even do a little bit of like understanding of like what I'm doing or did you just blindly send me this crap? Um, no, I, no. It's, it's mostly just, just blind sending. And, and it's <laughs> just, um, I, I think the thing is that what I find interesting about that and then we can kind of get back to some of the questions is it puts me off, not just that publicist, but whom they're representing. Mm. And that is, you know, that's so unfortunate for the client and, and the clients don't even necessarily know. I mean, I, I like seeing on the back end, you know, there are lots of ways that, that you can present information. Um, the example being, oh, we sent something out to, 4,500 people or whatever it is. Okay, great. How many people actually were interested? How many, where did those people come from? You know, where'd you get your list? How did that work? And that's actually, that's an interesting sort of tie in to um, what I always talk about, which is realistic expectations. Mm. You know, is this something that you deal with all the time where you've got a client come to you and they're like, Christian, we want you to make it go viral. Mm. Can you get us in mm. the financial times, or mm. can you get us in the wall street journal, you know, and, and just like, great, I've hired a publicist. And so now you're going to go make me famous yeah. tomorrow. Well, I mean, I think that we, we have to start at the beginning with what is the pitch? What is the story? I mean, a lot of times a winery will say, uh, Oh, we have a new gift box coming out. Who cares? Or they'll say, oh, our new vintage is coming out. And I'll be like, once again, who cares? Like, so it has to be developing like a good story. And that's where I think that 
it used to be like, you know, journalist versus bloggers or like, you know, publicist versus like, you know, content creators. Whereas now I think everything is very, very like fluid. And now it's about finding the best content. I mean, the way that a lot of freelance journalists are paid today, which is absolutely nothing, they literally will do a copy and paste of your press release because that's all the time they have for. So for me, having the story knowing what the key messaging is and then writing a very good press release 90% of the time if it's good it's good afterwards it's about you know tapping into the people that you know but if the story is actually compelling enough it will go viral like on its own um when people approach me and say hey uh we saw that you did this in x y or z could you do the same for me i'll be like uh, it's not really an interesting story. It's not really uh, compelling. I don't know how I could do that or how anyone can do it. And I think that it's important to be very uh, honest. Um, but the writing of the materials um, is more important than ever. You have so many people now that work as publicists and content creators and work for uh, you know retail spaces all at the same time. Um, and that's quite cool. I mean, I remember, and I'm sure you do as well, like when blogging first became like a big thing, when the internet developed, you'd always have like, you know, oh, could you invite some bloggers? Well, today, all the good journalists are also bloggers and all mm -hmm. of the good bloggers are also journalists. So I think that the, the world has kind of become very, very close. And so it's important to make sure that there's always a good story that's interesting to everyone. Um, and then after that, it's just a question of like press and go. So where, where does that place you in the process? So let's, we're going to, you know, make up a little scenario. I, I want something that's going to go viral. I dream mm. of going viral. It doesn't seem like it's useful for me to do things and then come to you after the fact and be like, okay, here's the package. Here's what I've done. Now, can you just go off on your own and make it work? It would seem like the way that I would approach it is I would come to you and be like, okay, Christian, need to build a brand profile. We're going to talk about Cincinnati. And we really need to build the brand profile in Ohio. Mm. Can you help me take the action, formulate the next steps that then we have a compelling message that's going to go viral in Ohio? Like, mm. is there a space where you're coming in and you're giving the advice before yes. the action is taken? Big time. And, and, and I think that I'm, uh, I write, uh, a lot. Uh, I'm a journalist, uh, you know, maybe 5% of my life, which, uh, is what I really like to do. Um, I know but you I used to have a guardian series. Isn't that I did. Right? I did. I had a, I had a six month column, uh, in the guardian once a week, but I, I also have had the pleasure of writing for, for Meinegers and for Jancis and for a number of people. Um, and I like to write only if I like what I'm communicating about. But I think that having worked as a journalist where it helps me is that if you pitch me about your Cincinnati idea, what I first do as a publicist is I come in and I interview you and I say, okay, what do you think? What do you think? Why, 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 why? And based on that, I'm able to come back to you with an actual communication platform and say, this is where I think you need to emphasize. This is where I think you need to uh, maybe tone down, da, 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 da. And, um, but I think it's really important when, cause a lot of times brands will say, Hey, I have this really great idea. And I'll be like, why, 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 
Why? And then you get them to actually rip apart exactly what they're doing and you see what's important. Um, I also think it's important to talk to different, uh, you know, stakeholders. Like if it's a winery, like you need to talk to the CEO and the marketing person, but I also want to talk to the winemaker. I also want to talk to the vineyard manager. I want to know, okay, is this in line? Because those kinds of stories are actually kind of overlooked because unfortunately you might have a really well-intentioned marketing person that's kind of missing some key parts of the story. And if I can speak to other people in the company, uh, then it helps me to sort of do like an audit and say, listen, this is what I think you should be talking about. Cause a lot of times people say, Oh, we're going to change X. And I'm like, okay, but why is that important? Why is that important? Why is that important? And they've done focus groups and they've done, you know, their own studies. Uh, and I'm like, okay, but no one's going to think that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have the exact same thing on the marketing side and uh, my best clients are the ones where, you know, we serve the marketing side, we serve the digital marketing side, but they have amazing external PR teams that they work with. Um, I, I do think what I find very interesting about it, so you know, wine marketers are vilified. It's just like, for whatever reason, we're the scum of the earth. And I think it's because we want to adapt stories to make them work, right? We're mm. like, okay, well, how? why does this matter to the people in Cincinnati? You need to tell me, yes, why you've done it, but I need to be able to tell them how it's going to change their life, why that's mm. important. Is PR, um, is PR vilified in that same way? Or is it embraced and loved? I think PR is vilified in the same way that marketing is vilified. Really? Um, like, like you'll meet people at a cocktail party and they'll say like, so what do you do? And it's sort of like, oh, you know, I work in PR and marketing and it's kind of like, oh, so you just like blow smoke. And I'm like, oh, <gasps> hi, nice to meet you too. Whereas like my husband is, you know, a real estate, you know, agent or like when you have a partner who's like a doctor or a lawyer, that's like quite clear sort of like what they do. But I think when you do anything that involves marketing or public relations, um, people just think, oh, you're just selling me this thing. What I find funny about the word PR is that PR is basically you've got public relations, but you've also got press relations. You've also got mm -hmm. reputational. You've got like a whole bunch of things that are into that. And I think that um, a lot of gay men like myself and women get thrown into this like, oh, you're just like the PR person. And it's not really given the same amount of validation. Whereas if you're the sales director, if you're the CFO, if you are the head of marketing, um, it sort of like goes, but a lot of people think like, oh, so you're just like kind of cute and like, you know, tell people what they need to know. And I'm like, that's not exactly like what we do, but I think we don't really know what PR means. So what does PR include? So if someone comes to you and they're like, Christian, we want to be on TikTok mm. or can you help us with our social media? Mm. You know, like, you look at them and you're like, yeah, nah. Mm. Uh, For me, I always start at the beginning. I always say, what is your story? Who are you? What exactly uh, composes you? What are your values? What are your convictions? Um, I think this is so funny. It's so like old school, but like I think doing a SWOT analysis every time is so important. It's like, what are you good at? What are you not good at? What are the opportunities? What are the threats? Let's start with that. Um, but a lot of people go immediately to the, I want to be on TikTok without actually figuring every out time. that. Oh my God, every time. And, and so I make my clients do SWOT analyses. I make them do macro environmental analyses. Um, and it, it, it 
I'll just kind of diverge the macro environmental analysis, which is like external factors that affect your business. And then the micro environmental analysis, which is SWOT analyses. This is the boringest shit I ever asked my client to do. And I'm like, yes, but I I know it's not shiny and it's not fun. But if you can do this, Mm. then the other things make more sense and and they're better investments. And we, we can actually collectively understand why we're making, you know, it comes back to why, why are we doing this? So high five on the SWOT analysis. I think any good, um, any good business builder listening is going to be like, yeah, yeah, we do that. Um, so, okay. Something that we deal with all the time, kind of two things that are related has to do with the short termism that's happened as a result of digital communications. Is this something that you find carries over into client expectations and and how you have to manage that? Well, I think the the thing with client expectations is that they'll see what you've done for one client and they'll expect the exact same thing Mm -hmm. for them. And I'll be like, uh, different brand, different story, different position, budget, budget. So it's, it's, it's really hard uh, for that. Client expectations I find is really hard, but everyone always wants this uh, immediate uh, thing. Like uh, if you're doing the announcement of uh, an acquisition, if you're doing the announcement of uh, a new winemaker, for me, like the, 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 the obvious players in the media world, they always want to have like the exclusive, the exclusive, the exclusive. But you know what? That's actually done in two seconds. And you know what? <clears throat> what you and I both looked at this morning on our social feeds, we've already forgotten 99% of it. So for me, it's about the really compelling stories that are there afterwards. Like, okay, the announcement is, uh, okay, immediate, 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 immediate. Everyone was talking about it. But it's like, what about like having a four-page article in the world of fine wine two months later that actually mm-hmm. addresses specific values, specific ideas? What about having like, you know, a two-page article in the FT a month later that actually says, okay, this is why Polly decided to position her company like this. Like, because the announcement is just the announcement, but I think it's about the, 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 the really important stories take longer to read. It's not just like X, 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 X. Like that's, you flip through it so quickly and it becomes completely obsolete, like so quickly. So I think that you can say, okay, these are the people that I'm going to target for uh, today, but these are the people I'm going to target in July, in August, in September. A lot of it also has like a calendar. Like, you know, people have a lot of time in July. They have a lot of time. You know when people don't have a lot of time? September. Yeah. school's starting and they've got kids and they've got all this stuff going on. So there's, it, it also depends on when you're pitching it, when is the best time to pitch something. Um Things like that that people don't really recognize. What about um, demonstrable returns? Is mm. this something that you ever get asked about from mm. clients in the same way that marketing teams say, okay, well, you're going to do it, but what's what's it going to get for me? How much money am I going to make off that? You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard. Or is that I mean, not like a part used- of PR? Con, you know, no, it, it is for sure. I mean, we used to have, uh, you know, the, the, the equivalent, uh, you know, sort of um, was you always had like the Nielsen's. That was always like a big thing was you need to have like, you know, this. Um, but the thing that's funny is that today so much stuff goes untracked. So I made an announcement uh, last week about a, a French luxury group that was acquiring uh, a, a winery in, in Italy. Um, and of course, you have all of the actual press 
that's generated from that. But also there's this whole like social component, which is a little bit more difficult like to track where people are saying, I think this, I love this, I believe in this, I believe in this. And people can track it, but um, you can't necessarily uh, say, okay, this is going to be quantified as you're going to get this return on investment. Because again, a lot of this is really, really long-term. Um, the, the clients that I always turn down are the ones that say, hey, I have an idea. Um, can I work with you for a month? And I'm like, no. I'm like, no, because the thing is, is that bring me on board and I will work with you five years, six years, seven years, eight years. Like that's what specifically what's good because a lot of it is very long-term stuff. And sometimes the grain, you don't say that in English, the, you should do, the grains that you plant now, you might not actually see a harvest for five or six years, but at least you're planting the grains now, the seeds, you're planting them now. Does that mean that the kind of PR that you do is really just restricted to big, well-money brands, you know, no. small brands, you, you know, can they leverage that skill set? Cause like when I hear that, I mean, you know, so much, so much of wine that we don't talk about comes back down to money and budget. Mm. Right. Mm. And, um, and I hear something like, Oh, this is going to take, this might take us a year. This might take five years. This might take six years. And, and I, I can just see my clients. If I were to say that to them, look at it and be like, well, I don't know that I can afford this for five years mm. without, you know, how do we, how do you, how do you not necessarily counter? Cause I don't want it to be like, it's a counter argument, but how do we help brands in an era where everything is super fast? And it's always about, you know, are we making the money that we need this year in this set of returns? Um, how can we help them understand the importance of long-term growth, hmm. reputation, community building? Well, I mean, first, I think that it's important. The way that I look at uh, things is that um, I'm very efficient. It's just me. I don't have an agency. I don't have a team. Like Westbrook Marketing Partners is literally just Christian Holthausen. So I think that I'm able to work with uh, on a very efficient uh, model. In every single case, uh, I work directly with the CEO of the company. So I'm working with someone so it's very, very efficient. Someone that doesn't necessarily have a lot of time, so it has to be very efficient. That's also very, very results-oriented. Uh, um, and I think it's important because the journalists that I speak to and the influencers that I speak to, they appreciate the fact that I have this direct uh, contact, that I actually have visited the property, do know the people involved. Um, my strength and weakness, I think, is the fact that I'm extremely transparent. I mean, I could never take on a client that I don't believe in because people would be like, Christian, you are bullshitting me. I've known you for 20 mm. years. There's no way that you would actually like believe what you're just saying to me. So I think that I, my, my model is not necessarily uh, one that uh, involves a lot of cash uh, up front because, again, since I'm very like long-term oriented, um, like I have some clients where they'll ask me to work on one project for a six-month period, and then it goes well, and then they'll bring me on for another project. And you can do it project by project. I mean, I have uh, seven different clients uh, at the moment, and each one of them has a different scale. Uh, some of them are, are very, very, very big and have a lot of uh, resources and others are much smaller and cool and unique and niche. And I think it's important to have a portfolio that represents um, both of those extremes. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we have to be interested in it, right? We totally. can't all. Um, so I, I, you're Franco-American. Mm. You mostly work with UK and European brands. Is that correct? Or do you work um, with well, American I, brands? Mike, so I have a, a group of brands right now. I've been working with the EPI group uh, for quite a while. Um, they own Piper Heidsick and Charles Heidsick and Champagne Ha in uh, mm-hmm. Champagne. They also have Biondi Santi and Isola Elena in uh, Tuscany. Um, so they're definitely like uh, a very important client. Um, my oldest client, my very first client was Jane Anson uh, in Bordeaux. Oh, the lovely Great. Jane. Yeah. She's so cool. And, and Jane is doing so much amazing work uh, in Bordeaux and, and trying to really put a focus on diversity and, uh, and uh, tokenism. I mean, she's just absolutely brilliant uh, what she's doing. I'll tell you the reason I asked the question about sort of your geographic mm-hmm. um, distribution of clients. Do you find that there are stark patterns defined by where we are? So the U.S. is different from, you know, Mm. the the new world is different from the old world. The way that you would work for a California client is very Mm. different to how you would work from a a champagne-based client or, or even in terms of age brackets, because that's one of the things that I find really interesting is how we access and communicate with the sub Gen Xers, um, Mm. determined to get Gen X Mm. into this somehow, uh, with those of us who are, you know, Gen X and beyond. So Mm. what do you notice? Where do you have to adapt? Well, I mean, one of my like, uh, favorite clients is, uh, international wineries for climate action, which was started, uh, three years ago, um, originally by the Jackson family in, uh, California and the Torres family, uh, in Catalonia. And it's really funny because there's now, uh, 34 different members from all over the world. So everywhere from Portugal to New Zealand. And we always have this, uh, conversation within the, the team because, uh, you know, the communication in Auckland is very, very different than the communication in Barcelona is very different from the communication in Napa. And it's really interesting how you have to kind of adapt. And I think that being Franco American helps me because maybe I'm a little bit, uh, more adaptable than a lot of people. I mean, you know, living in Spain, like I know living in France, a lot of people that if they grew up in one place and their friends are all married to people they went to high school with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of limits a lot of their like mm. adaptability. And I think that, um, yeah, one of the thing that I think you will agree with me a hundred percent on being American as well is, um, it always makes me laugh when Europeans talk about the American market, they always go, well, Americans like this. And I'm like, if you're talking Boston versus Dallas versus, Orange County, you're literally talking about three different countries. Like, let yeah. like, and 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 people always say, like, can you help us on the American market? And I'm like, what exactly are you doing? Like, where do you target? The thing that's also funny about the United States uh, for uh, Europeans is that, especially European wineries, they think New York, Chicago, Miami, LA, San Francisco, and I'm like, you know what? There's so many markets in the U.S. that you're not even like looking at. We're actually the same 50 winemakers roll into New York like every year. Why not go to Richmond? Why not go to Minneapolis? Why not go to Cincinnati? Why not go? Well, that's someplace? why I pick on Cincinnati because Ohio is turning into this like great market. Actually, totally. you know, go to D.C., go to Austin. Um, how much? So when we're doing that, we rely pretty heavily on 
consumer behavior data or first party data, you know, where we know exactly where their audiences are. Do you have to use that kind of quantitative data in strategy or in communication design? We do in in the sense that I think that uh, people that do what I do, like you need to definitely have a, a, a foothold like on the market to understand like where people are going. Like, I mean, the US I'm obviously quite strong in the UK like as well and kind of knowing like what the demographics are. And then if you need... Uh, you know, to have additional information, then you need to do the research and you need to figure out a lot of what I do is usually I lean on, uh, you know, contacts I have, I lean on friends that I have. And I say, listen, I'm thinking about opening up uh, this for this client in South Africa. What do you think? Where do you think I should go? How do you think I should go about this? Um, and I think that you can't be afraid to keep asking questions because the thing is is that um you don't know everything in the world and you can ask uh questions about like markets that maybe you might not be as familiar with and i think that that's okay and i think qualitative quantitative data both of them like are 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 super important um and i think that the u.s uh the same thing in the uk like everyone wants to be in london and it's like go 10 minutes outside london and you'll find like people that are like so happy to talk about like a young New Zealand winemaker or a young uh, Catalonian winemaker. Mm. So just jumping back to the American versus the rest of the world mm. thing for a minute. Um, one of the things that we notice, and it's so stark, especially going between New Zealand and Americans. Um, my American clients are completely down with saying, we are the most badass. We are the best at. We rock at this. Now we've got the personality choice. We've got the vibe, but we also have the confidence building. So how do you, how do you have to adapt the communications or the, the information that you send out mm. to reflect the differences in in those you know personality types? Do you? I mean the the, the American thing that I that I really find uh, hard is all of the the self-promotion i'm personally very very Ugh. good at promoting like a brand so if you said hey christian you're gonna promote polly i'd be like i'm on it i can do it i always use the example of the birthday party at the bar for example if i walk into a bar i don't know anyone there and i say hey everyone it's my birthday people are gonna be like who gives a fuck about this guy but if i walk into the bar and i've got you and i say hey this is my friend Polly. Today is her birthday. All of a sudden people are like, hey, Polly, shots, what do you want? So it's all about having like sort of like a wingman, which is how I always kind of approach, uh, you know, public relations like in general. Like I hate the self-promotion. I don't have business cards. I don't have a website. I don't walk into a cocktail party in New York and go, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm always a bit more like on the reserved side personally. Like I don't like promoting brand Christian. I like promoting brand whoever I'm working yeah. with. Um, but Americans are really, really, really pushy on that. And, and, and I think having lived abroad for as long as both you and I have, like we, we see that. And, you know, there's that great Proustian uh, line where he says, um, you know, it's not about seeing new landscapes. It's about seeing old landscapes with new eyes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I go back to New York, where I grew up, I'm like, oh my God, stop promoting yourself. What is wrong with you? Just sit down and maybe do more listening than speaking. 
Well, so this is an interesting thing. I'm going to go off piece for a minute. I I have two daughters, 19 and 20, and they've grown up in this era of personal branding, which you and I didn't like that. You know, I I often say that in our lifetime, we had um, no logos, right? Was was the big discussion, the big book that came out in the the 90s that was around the issues of taking that corporate brand, you know, like the, the personal branding, just branding as a whole. And, um, and what I notice with this next generation coming up is they have a very keen understanding of public personal branding versus mm. private life in a way that, you know, I think a lot of people who are older than them who are trying to mesh or adapt to the two, they don't really understand that mm. we've got we've got the off the record. We've got the private conversations. You know, these are, these are generations that are doing so much more with direct messaging, ephemeral, like literally sending voice messages that disappear the minute they've been heard. And I find that fascinating for how we have to learn to change our own communication. Um, well, another thing though, just kind of returning to the idea of, of, you know, what we all do for a living. I said this, so I interviewed, um, Lindsay Dyke, who is Mm. a young, uh, publicist in Oregon. I mean, young in Lindsay, since she's younger than me. Um, and we were talking about the fact how the public voices are so often crafted by very quiet people. You know mm-hmm. what? I, I give my clients my voice. I don't give a rat's ass about social media because I spend all week long helping my, my clients actually have better, stronger voices. And I think that that is a really unique challenge compared to say like influencers because mm-hmm. influencers, they're in your face, you know, getting, getting that work and showing, look, I, if, if I'm, my voice is this big and I've got a hundred thousand followers, I can do this for you. And I actually find that to be a real, um, not challenge, but just like point of curiosity that, mm. that so many of us who are professional communicators in some sense or another really just, I don't have business cards either. <laughs> I, I think, it, I mean, the, the personal branding thing is really funny because, uh, my sister is a, is a child psychologist and she talks about this all the time that the sort of 14 to 18 year old set, uh, today, the personal brand is so important and that represents a huge generational uh, shift. I mean, we always talk about, you know, a generational shift and a lot of the things that, you know, our parents said about us are the same things that their parents said about them. But I think with the development of all of these new um, technologies, now you actually see something that is a, it's kind of like the invention of television. I mean, it's such a huge, like generational shift. And you see these uh, 14, 15 year old kids that they're developing their personal brand and the personal brand is like so important. But she also says, my sister Gretchen, who I, she's my best friend in the world. She says all the time, like, you know, a lot of these kids, like they don't realize that what they're posting is going to stay with them like forever. Um, so, you know, women, you know, that are 14 years old sending, you know, racy photos to a guy that they just met, you know, like the night before, I mean, for I think people from our generation, like that's just hilarious. It's like, why would you actually do something? Because the thing is, is that now we're in an environment where everything is there forever. So you can't necessarily eliminate it. I mean, how many people of our age are so happy that when we were at university, we didn't have cell phones. I mean, there's a number of things that I- We were the last of the anonymous generation. I mean, I I think that I- 
thank God for that. Right. Thank God for that. Um, so much. I, I'm right there with you. And in terms of uh, the, the next point, in terms of um, how do we adapt, I sort of feel like we need to encourage people to uh, know what is real and what isn't. I have a friend who is a director of a very, very, very uh, famous hotel here in Paris, and I'm not going to mention it. Um, and uh, they basically have a budget for influencers were basically hot, young, 22, 23-year-old guys and girls come in and basically get topless and roll around like on the sheets of a hotel where the basic room starts at like 600 euros a night. And I was like, is that really like efficient? Like who's actually looking at that? And my friend told me, she was like, you have no idea. She's like, there are so Mm -hmm. many people that actually look to book hotels based on Instagram. For me, I'm kind of like, okay, I guess our generation ago, you would have like a guidebook. I will ask for recommendations. If I was coming to look for a hotel in Barcelona, I'd be like, hey, Polly, what do you know? What do you recommend? I guess you can go on booking and TripAdvisor as well. But I personally at 48 years old wouldn't necessarily go on Instagram and be like, wow, Raphael is rolling around in that bed and says that it has a very high thread count. I'm going to book that hotel. But apparently I'm missing something because my friend told me that uh, for her hotel in Paris, um, that that actually goes a really long way. And she said that the media budget that they used to spend 10 years ago on traditional luxury publications has been scaled down. And now they spend so much money um, on giving one free night in a room to these people. Um, I look at that and I'm like, okay, but clearly, you know, Raphael or Joanna, whatever their names are, they're clearly being paid to do this. And my friend's comment was like, yeah, but do you really think that X, Y, or Z model really believes in Lancome or really believes in Hermes or are they just being paid for it? So I think that the model has changed in some ways, but maybe not entirely. So there is an interesting article this week on the CNN International website that's Uh. talking about how travel and hospitality is reopening and so are the influencers. I'd recommend reading it because it talks about exactly this. So, um, you know, on the one hand, you've got the hotels and the establishments who are using influencers to great success and how much of a budget there is. You've got the ones who are like, we're sick of getting pitches from uh, Instagrammers or influencers who never do their research. Uh. You know, there's this one great quote where a woman's like, look, I don't want some 22 year old rolling naked on the sheets, but if I had a 45 year old woman who's like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm chubby. I wear mostly black, but you know what? I also have, I have a great sense of humor and I like the quirkiness. She's like, that's the person who I'd give the room to because that's the personality of my brand. Um, but then it also, it does have the feedback from the influencers and, and like the professional influencers, the people Mm. who've been doing it going on 10 years who are like, Mm. you know what? In three days, I am there to work. I meet the staff. I meet the people. I take thousands of photos. You know, I craft a whole story that instead of one $50,000 ad that rolls out in a magazine, they are Mm. going to literally have a campaign that will live on from the minute I walk out the door. And I, I was, you know, I think that Again, it's easy to get, especially for someone like me, I I can be a little derisive on influencers because it's easy to mentally place myself five or six years ago when it wasn't, there were not 
professionals who did a good job. But now we do actually have people that I could look at and say, okay, I could get behind having this particular person working for one of my clients because we have a, a legacy of good work, that, you know? So, um, anyway, so I, I find that I, I I find the Instagrammer thing and the influencer thing so interesting. You and I are never going to be Soho housers, you know, like mm. that's it. Um, but, but there is a large contingent who will. And, and it actually, so one of the questions I have, you work with a lot of luxury brands and before you were, you know, before you were Westbrook and went out on your own, you've worked for a lot of champagne brands. Mm. I feel like things that sparkle and effervesce, we can sell the pants off of, you know, mm. are, do you find a difference between working for the brands? So take any champagne brand. We don't have to pick ones that you've worked with that they have. They're, they're more dynamic. They're literally more bubbly. You know, they're, they're more full of life. They've, they've got a more fun audience. Do you find a difference in how you work with, you know, an, a champagne brand that's sold all around the world for special occasions and celebrations and how you message a more traditional staid Wine brand? Well, I think champagne is a lot uh, going for it. I mean, because Clovis, the very first king of France, converted to uh, Christianity in the 5th century, um, champagne became... Wait, are we having our history channel moment? We are, we are indeed. Okay. It had our, um, it was always the king of uh, wines and the wine of kings uh, going all the way back to the fifth century. So champagne has always had a lot, uh, you know, going for it. And I think that um, this idea of celebration has always been the biggest strength and the biggest weakness of champagne because, uh, you know, champagne is always, you know, for celebrations, for celebrations, for celebrations. Um, I think uh, a number of houses in champagne. And a lot of the champagne houses were started in the 18th century, the 19th century. They actually uh, have uh, been around for a while. And certainly 10, 15 years ago, when you went to visit a house in Champagne, the story was always, let's talk about Marie Antoinette, let's talk about caviar, let's talk about Russia in the 18th century. Like It was always really uh, background. You always sat in a very fancy room in Reims or in Epernay. You were always received by a very handsome, uh, you know, brand ambassador who was like, you know, 25 years old, boy or girl, very beautiful. Influencer. Exactly. A a, a primary influencer. And they would tell these stories. Whereas today, people that come to Champagne want to go to the vineyard. They want to go, hey, are you using herbicides? Are you using pesticides? How are you doing this? How are you doing that? How many men versus women do you have uh, on the board? Uh, What is your approach like on diversity? And the smartest champagne houses are the ones that are actually like embracing that. Um, Champagne to me is in many ways like uh, like Boldu in the sense that it's kind of like, well, we've been the best in the world for, you know, two centuries. So why question ourselves? The smart producers are actually uh, doing that and actually asking questions and saying, how can we talk about what's more important. The, the the false dichotomy that I hate more than anything is, um, you know, champagne versus Prosecco, champagne versus Cava, champagne versus English sparkling wine. There are great producers and crap producers and okay producers and mediocre producers, like totally. all over the world. So for me, it's about knowing the best producers. I mean, I will drink Charles Heidzik tonight and I will drink Raventos uh, tomorrow. Uh, and I'm not necessarily saying that I have a preference versus wines made in France versus wines made in Spain. I just love both of those producers. 
Um, and so I think that uh, it, today it's, it's, it's less about uh, the, the appellation. Because I think you agree with me, like, it used to be for a long time, like, as long as it said champagne on the label, that's all people needed. Whereas now people want much more. And I think that the direct-to-consumer business model, which a lot of producers have been embracing, as they should, is going even further. Because I have clients where a consumer will come from the United States and actually buy 16 bottles at the domain that they could find the exact same bottles at their local wine shop in Seattle, but totally. they want to feel like they've bought it from the domain that the winemaker signs the bottles, that they know the winemaker, that they have a selfie with the winemaker. This is like, this is cool. like you go to Paris and you buy an LV bag, you know, like totally. it's the exact same thing because I bought it in Paris. Yes, I could absolutely get it at South Coast up the street, but I'm going to buy it here because it's mm. the experience. I'm going to tell the story every time I open that bottle, every time I use that bag, every time I wear those shoes, whatever it is. Of, oh, that's right. I did this there. And I'm reminded of how awesome that moment mm. was. Um, so last question. Luxury versus non-luxury. Luxury is a word that I notice, um, like luxury is a word that I say is an internal word. We don't, mm. we don't ever go out and say we're a luxury brand. That's naff. Um, are, are there lessons from your experience working with luxury brands and how luxury brands plan their communication and then implement their communication that non luxury, super premium, you know, iconic brands can learn from? I mean, I think that the thing that luxury brands, like genuine luxury brands have in common is this kind of like internal belief that they actually are amazing, but it's that kind of quiet Protestant self-confidence that they don't need to be like flashy and like in your face. I think that anything that is flashy and in your face is really seem to be as, 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 as new money and, and people don't want it. A lot of luxury brands. I mean, if you look at brands, uh, like look at, uh, Almes, like look at Dior, look at brands that they know they're cool. They don't necessarily have to be throwing it like in your face. Like they're just kind of quietly confident. And I think this quiet confidence is is something that, you know, luxury brands have, like, they know what they're doing is amazing. They don't need to brag about it. They promote it, but in a very cool kind of almost effortless way, even if it's not completely effortless, the impression that they give is that it is very uh, effortless. In terms of uh, cues for luxury, What's really funny is that talking about, you know, Marie Antoinette and, and Caviar, today has completely been replaced with uh, different things. Like what's a luxury uh, value today? Time, health, uh, the future, the environment. I mean, it's amazing how many luxury brands are spending Generosity, so much. Generosity, collaboration. Like totally. there's, there's so they're spending much. so much space in the environmental sphere and they're spending so much time talking about, you know, uh, how they farm and how they work and how people are treated. And I think that's really positive. Um, where I think there's a real opportunity uh, for a lot of brands is to actually be like, what is real? Because the greenwashing thing is real. Um, the, you know, putting up uh, pictures of diverse people on an ad campaign in Times Square or on the Place des Vosges is fine. But I want to know how many of those people are actually on your board of directors, how yeah. many of those people are actually being paid properly what they're worth. So 
I think that we're all kind of luxury is all communicating now around uh, all of this stuff. But I think the the opportunity for a lot of brands is to say, no, we're actually doing it. Like we're actually doing it. And legitimately, this is concretely, you know, quantitatively what we are doing. And I think that's going to be an interesting space to see explored because I think consumers are getting really used to greenwashing and they're getting really used to, you know, diversity campaigns. And a lot of it kind of reeks of tokenism. Do we have another hour? Wow. Like where do we, where do we start on that one? Um, that's a whole different podcast. So what exciting news do you have coming up? Do you have anything like juicy that we need to be, um, we need to be paying Oh God, I wish to? I did. I was just having such a nice conversation. I felt like we should be sitting together and like having a glass of wine. Um, yeah, I don't, the, the one thing that I always, uh, try to promote uh, as much as possible is international wineries for climate action. We're doing such amazing work at the moment and we're looking for many, many more people to come on board. So, um, if we can spread the word about that, that would be really, really cool. So IWCA. Mm-hmm. So regenerative agriculture. Yes, and we're focusing on reducing uh, one's carbon footprint. So there's a lot of wineries now um, in Spain, in Portugal, in Australia, in New Zealand. Um, We're looking to find uh, a few more producers specifically in Italy and uh, Germany, um, because I think a lot of the regenerative stuff has been talked about a lot more in the new world. Um, And lots of people in the old world are doing it, but they just need to basically um, come on board, uh, a bit. So that's, it's not a scoop, but, uh, it's definitely something that I think is most important. What I like about the IWCA is that it's about forming, uh, a global coalition. Um, I really hate, um, this X versus Y stuff. Uh, we're all in this together. Climate change is affecting all of us. So, um, we yeah. have to work together, whether you're in the Barossa Valley or in Sonoma, climate change is real. So like we need to all be working together more and more and more. So um, I would definitely like to get more people um, into that uh, space for sure. High five. Thank you so much. You rock. I love getting to talk to you. And that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening and a great big thank you to Christian for joining us. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast, and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. Hi, guys. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.